Hello, and welcome to the City Church Evansville podcast. My name is Sean Little, and I'm the community and teaching pastor here at City. Today, lead pastor Jeff Kincaid began a new series entitled Collide, where emotion meets truth in the Psalms. The psalm we look at today was written by a man named Asaph, who was a worship leader for the nation of Israel, experiencing immense doubt. Here's Jeff Kincaid exploring doubt in the 73rd Psalm. Good morning. It's great to be back with you guys. Been gone for a couple of weeks, but as much as I missed you all, I knew you were in great hands with Sean. He did such a great job over the course of the last couple of weeks. And yeah, show him your appreciation. This morning, we're going to begin a, a new series for the next four weeks that I'm calling Collide. And the subtitle of this series is Where Emotions Meet Truth in the Psalms. You know, every single one of us deals with these powerful things called emotions. Some of us experience more emotions than others. Some of us are more adept at identifying what we're feeling than other people. Teenage boys are the worst. I have three teenage sons. When they were young, we would ask them all the time at dinner time, every dinner time, we'd When they were very little, we'd say, you know, give us your highs and give us your lows. By the time they got into adolescence, that was not cool anymore. So we asked them just, how was your day? And the word that we usually got back was, fine, that's it. And maybe if we got a little more, it was, fine, why are you bothering me with all these questions? So then Amy got tired of that, and she gave them she, she, she found a little card full of emoticons that just had little faces and then description of what they were feeling. And she actually passed it around and made the kids identify what they were feeling because teenagers can't do that. Some of our emotions feel great. Some of them not so great. Some of them get us in trouble. Some of our emotions don't get us in trouble. And depending upon your background, you may have, you may have been taught how to handle your emotions in one of a couple of different ways. Some of you may have been taught, for instance, that emotions are bad and that you deny them. You avoid your emotions at all costs. I think religious people often fall into this category. It's hard for religious people to admit the rawness and often the ugliness of their emotions because religious people are taught that their relationship with God is based upon their own virtuousness. And so you can't uh, uh, honestly admit bad emotions if you're a religious person. Buddhism would be a good example of this. Buddhism argues that emotions interfere with the development of the spiritual life. And so spiritual development includes the attempt to eradicate all of your emotions. That's how religious, uh, excuse me, that's how religion views emotions. On the other hand, If you're a product of the pop culture approach to feelings, you've been taught that feelings rule. I mean, pop culture says that you are what you feel and that whatever you feel has to be indulged. A few years ago, a guy by the name of John Mayer, raise your hand if you know John Mayer, okay? John Mayer uh, had a hit song and it was called Say What You Need to Say. And the idea was that if you feel like you need to say something, say it. And here's just a little brief section of the song. to say what you need to say again. 
he said, you, ne- you better know that in the end, it's better to say too much than to never say what you need to say again. Clearly, he's never been married. <laughs> you know, I've learned, over the, I've learned the hard way over the years that sometimes it's better uh, to keep my mouth shut and not indulge my feelings. So the Bible says something completely different than religion or than pop culture about our emotions. It doesn't. The Bible doesn't say to deny them the way religion does, nor does it say to indulge them in the manner the pop culture does. In short, what the Bible would say is this, that feelings are real, but not necessarily true. They're real, but not necessarily true. Emotions are part of being a human. We can't deny them, but not everything you feel is true. And so instead of denying feelings or instead of indulging feelings, your emotions must be processed. And you'll see this morning, you'll see how a man this morning uh, processes his emotions as we look at the passage that we read uh, in part of our uh, responsive reading just a little while ago. And in this passage, the psalmist is experiencing and he's processing doubt. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Psalm 73. Psalm 73. And in the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at today, doubt, next week, tears, then fears, and then guilt. Doubt, tears, fears, and guilt. We're going to be looking at how they collide with truth in the Psalms. And the Psalms are a great place to go to see how to process emotions because the Psalms are so full of raw emotion, as Sean was talking about just a moment ago. Raw emotion, sometimes ugly, sometimes beautiful, but always honest emotion. And I'm kicking this series off, as I said just a moment ago, by talking about doubt. Now, some of you might say, wait a minute, doubt isn't an emotion. Doubt is intellectual. Not really. Doubt often hides behind the intellect, But in reality, doubt is a condition of the heart. And we'll see that in just a few minutes. Okay, so we'll read from Psalm 73. In just a moment, we'll read from verse 1. But before you even get into verse 1, you'll notice that it says, a psalm of Asaph. Asaph, keep in mind this as we read this psalm, is one of King David's three chief musicians. And he played a significant role in directing worship in Israel's temple, which makes this psalm even more intriguing. Watch this. Let's read from verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, as for me, the worship leader over Israel, as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I'd nearly lost my foothold. I wonder how many of you uh, catch, uh, caught the story this past week of uh, the guy who climbed Yosemite's El Capitan wall without using any ropes. This guy just this past week did that. Anybody catch that story? Yeah. Uh, his name was Alex, and I think I'm pronouncing this correctly, Honold, and it was the most dangerous rope-free ascent ever. And I just want you to see a little clip of what it was like for this guy as he was climbing this wall. There he is in the upper left-hand corner in the red.
Now, as you watch that, how important do you think a good foothold was to that guy? I mean, like really important, right? It's life or death for him. It's everything for this guy. And so Asaph uses that vivid imagery that we just saw because he wants us to think in terms of life and death. This image of somebody who had uh, almost lost their foothold is uh, often used in the Bible to describe a person who is eternally lost. And so what Asaph is saying here is, I nearly lost my faith. I nearly lost my faith. Something has happened that has caused this worship leader in Israel to doubt what he's always believed to be true about the reality of God. And you have to understand, this, this doubt is a very severe doubt. It's not just some minor theological issue that he's dealing with. He's not just, like, you know, he's not thinking to himself, well, I'm not sure whether the rapture comes uh, before the tribulation or after. I'm not sure whether I'm a Calvinist or an Arminian. I don't know how many angels can stand on the head of a pin. I mean, these aren't the kinds of things that he's worried about. This doubt that he has is so significant that it's about to blow everything he has ever held true about his faith up. It's just about to blow it all up. And I wonder, have you ever had doubts like that? Have you ever come to a time in your experience with Christ that you've just wondered, Is this really all true? Could it be that this is all a sham? And of course you have. Everyone has had doubts like that. Doubts aren't just for people who are outside of Christianity looking in. All of us have those kinds of doubts. I've had those doubts. You've had those doubts too. You you got sick, very sick. One of your kids got sick, very sick. You tried to have a child on numerous occasions, but you couldn't conceive. Somewhere in all of that, you wondered to yourself, if God exists, if he's good like he says he is, how could he let this happen to me? Maybe none of what I've believed is true at all. Doubt like that happens to every single one of us. And this is the first point that I want to talk about this morning. And it has to do with the Bible's perspective on doubt. What's the Bible's perspective on doubt? Here it is. I just want to say it this this way. The Bible affirms doubt while also challenging you to doubt your doubts. So the Bible affirms doubt, but it also challenges you to doubt your doubts. And I wonder if that surprises you, that the Bible affirms doubt. Is that a surprise to you? Like the Bible ne- doesn't expect you to never doubt or to pretend like you don't have doubts at times. Why? Why? Why does it affirm doubt? Well, because there's much good that can come out of doubt. In fact, we get this very psalm because of one man's doubt. A long time ago, I was reading a book. It was written by an educator, and I'm so sorry that I don't remember the name of the book. It was so long ago, and I can't give you the source. But the writer said this. And I, 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 this has been a, a kind of a quote that I've used many, many times uh, throughout my adult life. And it goes like this. <clears throat> simplicity on this side of complexity is worthless. But simplicity on the other side of complexity is worth everything. And let me explain what that means by a story. Back when I was in my like, late 20s, early 30s, like five years ago or so, 
I was having lunch with an older, very godly man. And this guy had been through a number of very difficult things in his life. He'd lost his first wife. She had passed away. Uh, His second wife had had an affair. He'd wanted children all of his life, but never was able to um, have any. And there there, there were just a number of other things that this guy had gone through in his life. And as we sat there for lunch, I asked him, I said, if there's one thing that you had to say, that you had to tell a young man like me, one thing that you would want a young man like me to know, what would it be? And here's, here's what he said. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That was very simple, right? And if you're, like if you're, if you're, if your little daughter or your granddaughter came up to you after church and she sang that song or she said that line to you, like you would think it was so sweet. It's so neat that she has such a grasp of this simple truth. It's, it's neat. It's simple. But when a man in his 70s who's seen much pain and hardship says that, yeah, it's simple, but it's come through a great deal of wrestling through some very tough, very painful, very complex issues. And so it's much more profound when he says it, isn't it? I mean, it's sweet and it's true when the little girl says it. But when it's come through complexity and pain and hardship, then it's really profound. And that's what is meant by simplicity on the other side of complexity is worth everything. See, doubt can be very, very good. When you, doubt, you're, when you doubt, you're forced to wrestle with what you believe. I don't know what we're going to do when you leave, Sean. <laughs> Who's that attentive to know? Thank you. When you doubt, you are forced to wrestle with what you believe. And on the other side of that, on the other side of wrestling, you can come to a deeper, more profound understanding of your faith. I want you to know that one of the core values of City Church. When we started this church, we wrote a list of what are the core values of this place. Besides our doctrine, which is important, we wrote, what, what do we want this church to feel like, to be like? One of our core values is intellectual integrity. We want you to know that this is a place that is a safe place to ask hard questions about Christianity. We don't expect you to just accept everything that we say here without wrestling with it, without asking questions about it, without sometimes being very skeptical. That's how anyone comes to own anything that they've learned. And by the way, one of the best places to do that in this church is through our city life groups. Groups of people that meet in homes, they, they talk about what was preached. We give them a list of questions and they discuss what we've uh, preached on Sunday morning in, in more detail. And that's a great place among other people to wrestle through what you believe, to ask hard questions, not just to accept it because somebody said it. That's what we're supposed to do. But while the Bible does affirm doubt, it also challenges your doubts. Why does it challenge your doubt? Because if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes we doubt because we don't want to believe. Isn't that true? I've met uh, many people, had many people in my office before, many people that I've talked to out on the street who are asking questions 
of Christianity, but they were doing it just to reinforce their doubts. In other words, they were asking without the intent of pursuing truth. They were asking to just reinforce their own doubts because they don't want to believe in God. And so the Bible says that you should doubt your doubts because all of the inertia in the human soul moves against believing in the God of the Bible. So on the one hand, the Bible affirms doubting, but on the other hand, it challenges you to doubt your doubts. That's the Bible's position on the issue of doubt. Now, second, here's the second thing I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about what causes doubt. What is it that causes doubt in you? And I said a few minutes ago that doubt hides itself behind intellect, but it really isn't merely intellectual. It's emotional. And why do I say that? Well, I want you to look at what Asaph says in verse 3. He says, for I envied the arrogant when I, what's the word? When I saw the prosperity of the wicked. The key word in this verse, as it pertains to what we're talking about this morning, is the word saw. Notice back in verse 1 that Asaph said, surely God is good to Israel. Now, what is that when he says that? What is that? Well, it's a statement of his belief. He says, this is something I know to be true. Surely, certainly, without a doubt, intellectually, I know this to be true. But then he saw something. And isn't it true that what we see with our own eyes carries far more power than just what someone tells us? Like, for instance, you could tell me that the Grand Canyon is breathtaking. And I might even believe you, but until I see it with my own eyes, then when I see it on my own eyes, man, it carries so much power. And I go... Yes, it's breathtaking. It's like I really own that, right? What's Asaph saying here? He's saying that he saw something with his own eyes that contradicted his intellectual belief. And specifically what he saw was injustice, the prosperity of the wicked. Actually, what's interesting is that that word prosperity is the Hebrew word shalom. Anybody ever heard the word shalom? Are you familiar with that word? It carries enormous Uh, religious significance, especially to the Jewish people. The word meant like wholeness of life. It meant peace. It meant harmony. In other words, life as it's supposed to be, what we all want life to be. And in fact, shalom was what God had promised Israel if they would live in obedience to him. And Asaph says, wait a minute, wait a minute. The only people that I see experiencing shalom are the wicked and that's not what you promised, God. In fact, in fact, it's the reverse of what you promised. Now, I don't have time this morning to read verses 4 through 11, but those verses are a description of these wicked people that Asaph is referring to. They're very prosperous people, but they're not wicked because they're prosperous. Nothing wrong with being prosperous. They're wicked because they came by their wealth in dishonest ways. They're self-promoting. They're ruthless. They've gotten rich on the backs of the disadvantaged, the poor, unfair labor policies, perhaps, deceit, maybe sweatshops, sexual harassment, unsafe work environments, whatever. And he summarizes all of this in verse 12. He summarizes his complaint. He says in verse 12, this is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Like these are people that dishonor God in every way, but they never have to worry when their brakes need replaced. They've got all the money in the world. That's not a problem for them. Like if their kids need braces, 
No big deal. They've got the money for that. College tuition, not a problem. I'll just write a check. In fact, I got three kids that are going to college. I'll just write a check for all of them at the same time. Is that okay? No big deal because they've got all the money in the world. They're healthy, they're wealthy, and they don't have common people problem. And he says, this isn't fair. If God is real, he wouldn't let that happen. But here's what I want you to notice. It's not just that Asaph saw injustice. It's not just that. Look at what he says in verses 13 and 14. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted. And every morning brings new punishments. Do you see it? The injustice that has him upset isn't just abstract injustice. Like this isn't justice excuse me, injustice that he saw on the news. Look, it's obvious. I mean, when you're, as soon as you're old enough to watch the news, read the news, you know there's injustice in the world. It's all over the news, right? I mean, like that's, that's understood. But no, this isn't just abstract injustice. This is personal. He is one of the afflicted. His kids need braces and he can't afford them. His kid is sick, and the cost of caring for her is breaking his back. He's the one that's suffering. And see, here's the thing that I want you to see about doubt. What causes doubt? Here it is. Doubt comes when something you experience makes what you know in your mind unreal to your heart. Doubt comes when something you experience makes what you know in your mind unreal to your heart. It just doesn't feel real. That's the cause of doubt. It's not merely objective and intellectual, you see. It's subjective and emotional as well. You're angry, you're bitter, you're full of envy because of something that happened to you that didn't happen to someone else. And that's where Asaph is here. He starts with what he knows in his mind to be true. Surely God is good. Certainly God is good. But when he suffered personally, and he saw all of these wicked people prospering around him, who seemed to be experiencing the shalom that God promised the righteous, that's when Asaph began to feel that his whole belief system might just be a sham. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been there? I've been there. A bunch of years ago, 15, 20 years ago, um, everything in my life just seemed to be an absolute mess. Like I had a kid that was very sick. I had a a house that um, the contractor who'd built the house had uh, done the foundation work poorly. And you like needed a rope to get from one side of the house to the other or you would lose your foothold and slip into nowhere. Amy and I in our marriage, we were, it wasn't wasn't going well. We were at each other's throats. My church was sick. They were, I mean, it was a church full of snarling wolves at the time. They were sick. I was sick because I was sick of them. And I just thought to myself, God, if, if you're real, why all of this at one time? Like I could take one of these maybe, 
But all of this, you could spread this out among a bunch of other people, and it would be okay with me, not just all me. And I wondered, I was a pastor, I wondered, is all of this a sham? You've been there too. We've all been there. And what do you do when, what do you do when, when, you, when you feel that? Do you deny it? No, I don't feel any doubt. Do you indulge it? God, I've decided because I feel that you're a sham, this is a sham, and I'm done. You just give yourself over to it? No. The Bible says that you process emotion, including the emotion of doubt. You process it. You deconstruct it. And here's the last thing that I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about how to deconstruct your doubt. If you're here this morning and you're feeling doubt, maybe something happened to you. I talked to a man in the first service. His, uh, his mother, is, uh, she's in hospice. She's down to 50 pounds. His prayer is that the Lord would take her quickly because he doesn't want her to suffer all of this torment. But she is suffering and she's in torment, a godly woman. And I can imagine he might be wondering, Lord, this is a woman who served you all of her life. If you're real, if you're good, why aren't you taking her home? Why are you making her go through all of this? Maybe, maybe you're someplace like that today. Maybe it's a child that you're concerned about. Maybe it's some other loved one that you're concerned about. Maybe you lost your job and you're worried, sick about your finances and about your future. If you're there this morning, how do you deconstruct your doubt? Well, let me just show you a couple of things. First, here's what, here, I'm going to put it in these terms. Here's how you deconstruct your doubt. Number one, be honest about your bias. Verse three, he says, I envied, I envied the arrogant. This is personal, he says. I did, I envied the arrogant. This isn't abstract. This is about something that happened to me and I'm angry about it. Because I'm angry, I don't want God to be real. I don't want to believe in God. What are you doing when you're, when you're honest like that about your bias? Well, you're doubting your doubts. We talked about this earlier. You're doubting your doubts. You're saying, I can't really trust my doubts right now because I realize I'm injecting my own bias into these doubts. Be honest about your bias. Here's the second one. Go to church. Go to church. Notice, notice what he says in verse 16. When I, tried to, when I tried to understand all this, when I tried to get my head around all of this, it troubled me deeply until I entered the sanctuary of God. I have this quote on my, the wall in my office that says, uh, cynicism is a refuge for cowards. Cynicism is a refuge for cowards. And it's not my, it's not, you know, I didn't say it. Uh, Cory Booker at the Democratic Convention last year said it, and I think Sean is even the one that, uh, that pointed it out to me, and I was like, as soon as I heard it, I thought, man, I've got to have that on my wall. Why is it true that cynicism is a refuge for cowards? Because it doesn't take any work to be a cynic. Of course there are injustices in the world. Of course there are crooks in the world. Of course there are tragedies in the world. 
All of that's obvious. You don't have to do any work to see that. But it takes a lot of effort to see that there's also a whole lot that's good in the world. There's a whole lot of people who are very sincere. And there are many good people who come out to help in the midst of tragedy. Now, in the same way, listen to me. We live in a world that gives us all kinds of sensory experiences that tell us that God isn't real, that the only thing that is real is what we can see. It takes no effort to stay in your doubt. That's pretty simple. You have to put some effort into things to see that there's more to life than what you can see. You have to get into a church in which you can experience something that challenges your doubt. You sing a hymn, you sing a song, you listen to truth. You're around other people who sacrifice all of the other things that they could have done on Sunday mornings, including sleep in, participate in travel soccer, mow the grass, whatever, because they believe that the most true thing that they can do on a Sunday morning is to worship the resurrected Christ. And so you get around these people and you are reminded that there is a transcendent reality, that God is good, that there is more to this life than what I can see. See, you didn't get into your doubt just by thinking it's not just intellectual. You got into your doubt through your own experience. And so you won't get out of it by just thinking your way out of it. You need an experience. So go to church. Here's the third thing. How do you deconstruct your doubt? You're honest about your bias. You go to church. Here's the third one. Read the book. And by the book, I mean the book, the Bible. And I say that because I want you to remember what's got this man so upset, this worship leader in Israel. What's got him so upset? He's upset because there is injustice in the world that doesn't seem to get punished. And here he is, the worship leader of Israel, suffering, while the wicked people who deny God, who have nothing to do with God, they're prospering. And that's got him angry. But I want you to notice, verse 18, notice the change in his thinking after he goes to church. He says in verse 18, surely you place them on slippery ground. Hey, you remember how this started? He said, I nearly lost my foothold. But he says now, after he's gone to church and he's been reminded of the transcendence of God and the holiness of God, surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. What's he saying? First of all, he's not saying that he's excited that these people are going to experience tragedy. What he's talking about here, he is in a sense personifying evil. What he's saying is that he's realized that in the end, evil will not be victorious because the Lord is just. These people who refuse to acknowledge God and who amass fortunes on the backs of the poor and the oppressed, these people won't have it good forever. In fact, one day, suddenly, and by the way, every time the Bible talks about the fact that evil will be dealt with, it always talks about suddenly it's going to happen. Like suddenly a person... Some guy may be flying on a plane, leans back first class, takes a little nap, 
going to his next business appointment. He's worth a ton of money, and he has a heart attack as he sleeps, and suddenly it's over. Suddenly. One day, suddenly, they will experience the opposite of shalom when they face the swift and the terrible judgment of God. And where Asaph began by saying that he nearly lost his foothold, like I said a moment ago, he sees that the wicked are the ones who are really on slippery ground. God held him up when he slipped, but who will be there for the wicked when they slip? And the reason I say read the book is because this message is all over the Bible. If you find yourself wondering about about why the wicked prosper, read the Bible. It's in there over and over that God will be victorious in the end because he is just. And so evil will not continue to prosper. So get in the book to get some perspective. And then finally, last but not least, Look to the cross. Look to the cross. Because I want you to notice what he says in verse 21. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet, I am always with you. Why? Why? Because you hold me by my right hand. You see what he's saying? All the way through this experience, Asaph says, I was bitter. I said some terrible things. My heart was bitter towards you, God. I was angry. I was like a beast to you. Yet all the way through this, you held my hand through all of my doubts like a father holds the hand of his little boy. How does he know that? I mean, obviously, you know, God didn't, he didn't actually feel God's hand holding. How does he know that? How does he know that God continued with him through all of his doubts? How can he know that? Well, I want you to think about it. When Asaph went into the sanctuary, when he went into the temple, one of the things that he he would have seen, which is a big part of Israel's worship, was the sacrifice of animals, sacrifice of beasts. And the purpose of this sacrifice of beasts was to uh, point to a coming Messiah who would die for the sins of the people. Jesus, of course, was that Messiah. And he himself was sacrificed like a beast himself on the cross. And so where God held on to Asaph's hand through his, though his feet nearly slipped, on the cross, God let go of Jesus' hand and he allowed him to fall to his death. God gave him what we doubters deserve so that we doubters can know that in spite of all we do, God will never let go of us. And I want you to understand that you'll never get to the other side of your doubts until you understand what Asaph understood, that no matter what he did, no matter what he had said, that God continued to hold on to him all the way through because Jesus Christ would die on a cross for Asaph's sins, for my sins and for your sins. And so we never have to worry that God will let us go, that he will be angry at us when we doubt. And you will never get through your doubts until you understand that. 
And I also want to say that you will never get through your doubts until you understand, understand that the shalom that Asaph longed for and that you long for, life as it was supposed to be, you'll never get there until you understand that that life is not in health or wealth, but it's in growing intimacy with the Lord Jesus Christ, who will never leave you nor forsake you, even in your doubts. Verse 25, and we'll close. Asaph, the worship leader of Israel, after going through all of this, concludes by saying, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail because I'm weak, I'm a sinner. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, hey, do you remember back at the beginning of the psalm? He says, surely God is good to Israel, right? But as for me, he says, my feet had nearly slipped. you remember that? Now he's completely reversed. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all of your deeds. That's simplicity on the other side of complexity. That's how you deconstruct your doubts. Don't just indulge them. Don't deny them. Own them. It's good to doubt. Don't just indulge them. Deconstruct them. Let's pray together. I suspect, Lord, that there are people here this morning who are dealing with doubt. And it's probably because of something that they're going through. Certainly, there's, there is an intellectual component, but there's, a lot of it is something that they're going through or maybe something that they've gone through in the past. Lord, would you uh, assure them that you're not angry at them because they doubt? But Lord, would you give them also the ability to doubt their doubts, challenge them in that way? And I pray that the truth this morning of, of Scripture and, and, and of, of how to deconstruct your doubt and, and of Asaph's example of a, of a very godly man who doubted and was angry, but then in the end, after he'd processed it all, came back to you. Or would you, would you just reassure those people this morning that are doubting that you love them and that you'll hold their hand through all of them? We thank you for that truth. Lord Jesus Christ, we worship you. If there are people here this morning who've never placed their trust in you, Lord, today I pray would be the day that they would recognize that they're a sinner and that there was no other sacrifice than the one that Jesus, that you made Jesus on the cross for their sin. And I pray, Lord, that they would believe in you, that you died and that you were raised again. Lord Jesus, we worship you this morning, the resurrected Christ. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Have you ever experienced doubt as it relates to your faith? Maybe you're there right now. Well, if you are, you find yourself in good company because some of the most faithful people throughout Scripture are riddled with doubt. Riddled, but not ruined. Not ruined because ultimately, these people have clung to the person of God, Jesus, who himself was ruined for anyone. 
even those of us who doubt, yet cling to him for relief. Thank you for joining the City Church Evansville podcast. You can find out more about who we are at citychurchevv.com. And we'd love for you to join us on a Sunday morning at 9.15 or 11 a.m. at 314 Market Street in downtown Evansville.